So I first met Christopher Carter nearly a decade ago when he raised his hand to participate in the inaugural Good Life Project Immersion. And it was this year-long deep dive into work and life that we ran for about five years. And Christopher, or Casey as most people call him, he was running fast at that point. I wasn't sure if he was running towards something as much as he was running from it. In the end, I think like most of us, it was probably both. A married dad of three living in Ohio, working at a Chicago ad tech startup. After exiting life as a touring musician, he stumbled upon a book that would change the direction of his life. In our lives, they intersected just at that existential reimagining moment as it was shifting into high gear. There was this moment during our first weekend together, 15 strangers who had become fast family at this industrial space in downtown Manhattan. And I caught him out of the corner of my eye, sitting cross-legged against this, I want to say, 100-year-old wall of leaded glass windows, the light pouring in behind him, his hands laying open over his knees as he sat in meditation. It was this moment of what would become powerful foreshadowing. In the ensuing years, Casey would become an initiate of Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship, a Kriban Yogi. Meditating hours a day, he'd find himself eventually exiting his career to carve out his own path, really bridging the worlds of spirituality and business as an executive coach, the founder of This Epic Life Consultancy, and someone who remains fiercely devoted to bringing all parts of himself the deeply spiritual yogi, the bouncing off the walls kid and musician, the wise mentor, husband, and dad to everything he does. In his words, full life integration. And along the way, he developed his own philosophy that he calls the four permissions, which also happens to be the focus of Casey's new book, Permission to Glow. So excited to dive into this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And away we go. That's how I'm starting all of my new podcasts, by the way. <laughs> That's per- and away we go. 
Christopher Carter, um, we are family, which makes this an interesting conversation and an interesting uh, sort of like opportunity to dive in because we've known each other for a long time right now and been through a lot of stuff together. And I have seen you navigate literally every part of your existence, your world, your career, your family, your internal life, your spiritual life. I'm going to take this opportunity to ask you questions that I have never asked you. Oh, wow. And we're going to completely deconstruct your life. <laughs> oh, perfect. That's great. Just so just like just easing into the shallow end. In the most terrifying way perfect. possible. Yeah, Absolutely. That's great. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so as we sit here having this conversation, you're at a moment in your life where you have built a really beautiful professional life, an incredible family life, a deeply devout spiritual life. And you wake up every day and, and a lot of your day is spent helping, guiding, coaching some of the highest level people in industry, C-level people, senior level leaders. But if you were to look at your early life, at sort of like the thing that you stepped out of adolescence and into as your potential vocation or career and projected out forward that this is where you would be, it would be almost impossible, I think, to, to guess that this would be your life. Because in the very early days for you, you were kind of obsessed with music. Like that yeah. was your everything. Yeah. So I, I'd say those formative kind of inflection points, you know, I thought as, as you were saying that I was honestly thinking about sparkotypes truly. I'm a performer sage and performer, which you alluded to. Yeah. I wanted to be a musician and an artist since I was a little kid. And when I was about four years old, my, you know, your parents always tell those stories that just make you groan. And you're like, please never again tell that story. Well, I have to tell this quick little story. Is that apparently, and I kind of remember this a little bit, so I know my mom just didn't make it up. But I asked my mom for a piano when I was about four years old because I was obsessed with Barry Manilow. It was that album cover when he's wearing all white with the really low cut V-neck thing with the star necklace on and his eyes are blue and dreamy and his hair is perfect. And I would gaze at this thing for hours and I asked her for a piano and she said, why do you want a piano? Why do you want a piano? And I said, well, because I can't become a star without a piano. Duh. And I just always wanted to be a performer or a songwriter. And I think that that, you know, my mom's love of music really infected me early on with that love of music. And she was so supportive with me eventually getting that piano and cello and a bass and a guitar, all the things I ended up playing. So I think that kind of set me off on that path to become a, become a performer. So when you, you know, it's one thing to get a five-year-old kid a piano because you think, hey, they want to be a performer yeah. and they're going to do all sorts of awesome stuff in elementary school and middle school and high school. But then the notion of a parent thinking, oh, what seed did I actually just plant? And like, so this kid is now going to go out into the world and try and become a professional musician, like build a, an actual career as a full-time touring musician in a yeah. band. I'm curious what the dynamic was there as you sort of said, okay, so this thing that I've loved doing, it's actually what I want to do for my main thing. Like, this is what I want to do in the world. Yeah. I mean, my mom was super supportive. I was raised by a single mother and my dad lived in another state. He, he was less supportive of the arts, but, but he understood it. I mean, I think he appreciated that I was into it. But my mom had this kind of like one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas approach. You know, she would fan the flames but then when it came to making career choices or college choices, it was always have a backup plan. By, by that point, I had become a professional bass player. And um, the, the mantra was always bass players are a dime a dozen. Ha, ha, ha. That's her joke. 
but it, it, it planted that seed of, of finding a plan B and, and working on plan B. And uh, I don't falter for it. You know, I, I'm going through the same thing these days in my house with our, with our own teenage daughter, who's also a professional musician, except we're only pushing plan A this time. But uh, I, I do remember that kind of awkward tension between knowing I was here to express something and being very naturally talented at it. And also, you know, I skipped the part where I, I drove my mom crazy for many, many years practicing. You know, she said my, my piano would have like rotten, eaten apple cores lined up on it, you know, as if it was, you know, if it was Billy Joel's piano, it'd be like empty beers and mine was like rotten apple cores. And I would just sit there and eat apples and practice the piano for hours and hours and hours and just drive everybody crazy. And if I wasn't doing that, I was sawing a cello in half. And if I wasn't doing that, I was playing my bass through a distortion pedal, trying to learn Cliff Burton's bass solo from Metallica uh, as as a rite of passage. So all these kind of formative years trading in my social life as a kid for musical skills. Um, and I never knew exactly how I would use them until I, you know, I was two years into college when I finally got an opportunity to, you know, hit pause on school and, and go do the pro thing for a while. So I'll, I want to go into that because I know you spent some time touring, but you also just brought up something which is really interesting to me. So you have a daughter um, yeah. who is, you have three awesome kids. Your oldest daughter is now in high school, a professional musician, part of a band. They're getting a ton of attention. Right. And you just said, okay, so you were always taught have a plan B, but as a parent now, um, with a child who is stepping full steam into the world of music, you guys are focusing on just have a plan A. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about this. How does this evolution happen to you? Well, it, it's you know, it, it's her senior year of high school. She's been singing in this band since she was twelve. She just turned seventeen. They are playing festivals. A lot of kids and adults are showing up at their shows, wearing the shirts, singing all the lyrics to the songs, driving from a couple hours away. So it's actually happening. Like there's no doubt about it that it, that something is happening. Uh, they played this little street festival that Elliot, when she sang with me the first time, she was eight years old. I think you might remember this. It's called Poor Tracker. 2013, she plays with me, performs with me for the first time singing Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And it was a beautiful moment. Like 200 people showed up and this little tiny girl sang this thing. And now her band shows up to play that thing and about 2,200 people pack a yard to see these kids play. It was, it was utterly ridiculous. It shut down all the other stages in the block. And, you know, we're scratching our heads wondering what the hell's going on, but but it, it's it's obvious that, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm a coach or she grew up in a household where people like you come to visit or people like Cynthia Morris or Ani DeFranco, people that really kind of live and breathe possibility and live and work their plan A. It, it's not me preaching that. It's as much as it is me just kind of defending that, you know, as as she's a senior in high school now and like the mailbox every single day is packed with stuff from different schools. Come here, come here, come here. Yeah, I just put them straight. I take the whole stack and put them straight into the recycle because I know she just doesn't even want to see them. You know, she she wants to get in the van with her band. And um, if she's going to go to school anywhere next year, it'll be where her bass player goes to school about 15 minutes away. Yeah, I mean, it's you say that with such conviction. And I know that it's not fabricated. You know, it's not it's not like you're saying, I, I let me say this over and over and over so it becomes my belief system so that I'm okay with it. And I'm, it's not a coping mechanism for you when you yeah. say that sort of like, no, I truly believe 
that this is the right thing to do in this moment in time? Well, I mean, and, and I'll, let me be honest. I mean, working with her band, I've coached her band since the beginning. And when when, when our neighbors, our, our neighbors, the bass player and his family, when the bass player boy and his dad, Noel, who's my co-dad manager, were the dadagers of the band. When, when they walked over one day when Elliot was 12 and they said, do you want to be in our rock band? You know, like everything kind of changed. And um, from the beginning, I realized that this experience is just so funny and, and painful for me as a coach because it brings up all of my old dysfunction about bands, you know, uh, like all the personalities, the creative struggles and compromises. It brings up all that stuff on a regular basis. But at the core of it is that big dream that we all have on some level when we're kids and I don't want to be the one to get in the way of that in any way possible. It, in fact, quite the opposite. I will do anything to facilitate it, including if she's ever ready to not do that thing, I'll be a hundred percent supportive of it. But right now, if she, I'm always looking at her and saying like, are you all in? Cause when she shows me, she's all in. I'm like, well, if you're all in, I'm all in. And we, we have a good time with it. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I kind of look at it as, so Music is such a hard business. Oh, Breaking yeah. into the business is so hard. Growing in the business is so hard. And succeeding and then sustaining success is so brutally hard that if you have if you have the internal fortitude, the strength, the initiative, and like the, the ability to just wake up in the morning and take action over and over and over for often years and years and years in the name of working towards this one powerful vision that you hold so deeply in your heart even if it doesn't work at the end of that, like if you've shown that you have the capacity inside of you to do that, you know, and then you hit a point five years down the road, 10 years down the road where you're like, you know what, this just isn't it. I need to tap out of this. You've demonstrated the ability. If like, if you could take that exact same drive and initiative and work ethic to anything right. where it's actually not nearly as brutally hard to step into it and, you know, like do well, it just seems like it's extraordinary training, even if at the end of the day, you decide to step away from it. Well, it's so crazy making about music is so much of it at the end of the day is left up to chance who you know, who likes your stuff, which executive was rubbed the wrong way by not getting tickets to something. I mean, there's so many millions of variables, right? But these kids have shown repeatedly that they have something special to get them the attention, the airplay. They, they just, they're getting ready to take on a much bigger national level manager. And these things come from having something special. So... I think just nurturing that creative flame uh, while also, you know, keeping other doors open. I mean, Ellie's also a talented visual artist. She's always working on visual art. She designs all the t-shirts. So, um, you know, at, at this age, I mean, I, I watched you raise a teenage daughter too. You know, you're just trying to instill some level of work ethic, you know, you might as well fall in love with working your ass off on something, you know, because it's what's required at some point. So she, she's just now starting to get inklings of that, you know, and, and still resists it. I mean, it's, you know, it's not easy to sit down and write new songs. Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, when you think about your experience on the road, it's got to be so interesting because on the one hand, you're a dad, and on the one hand, you're a coach. So you've got all this training on how to actually interact with people in a constructive way. You're also that you you have this incredible past life, you know, like as a touring musician on the stage. I imagine there's sort of like this constant, you know, it's like you have three little things sitting on your shoulder. Yeah, <laughs> saying say Madness. this, say this, no, say this, no, right. say this, and do this, don't do this. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk about your time on the road um, also, because so you eventually do become a full time touring musician. What is that life like for you? I mean, because 
there's a lot of the mythology around it. Yeah. You know, and then there's the reality of it. It was a little bit of both those things. So I auditioned for and got into my favorite band at the time. If you could picture that insanity for starters, I used to go see this band every weekend that, that they would tour through uh, Bowling Green, which is where I went to school in Western Ohio, Bowling Green State University. And when the twist offs came into town, it, the town kind of shut down and all the kids would go there and get crazy. And I, I would, I got thrown out of their shows. I was a rowdy 19 year old kid getting thrown out of those shows. And over the summer when I was home at my mom's house, I saw that they were auditioning bass players and I got an audition and I was so terrified to even show up to audition. I couldn't talk to these guys. They were like my heroes, right? So I couldn't, you know, get a word out and I wanted, I left my car running. I was going to drive away, but I went in and I did well and I got in. And uh, so, so for the first, you know, maybe six months of the band, I didn't really say a word to anybody. I just kept my head down and just tried to learn the 50 or whatever song. So I loved the musical challenge of it. I loved using my chops every single day and, and just like that workout, woodshedding. And um, got to play with a lot of my favorite bands at the time, Blink-182, Sublime, you know, just the, the height of like the ska punk explosion. But yeah, on the, on the other side of it, it is, it's what every song said it was. It's brutal. <laughs> you know, we once toured, I remember the, the, the height of it was we played 35 shows in 30 days. For starters, 35 shows in 30 days, which means like, you know, five days of campus shows during the day and then another club show at night. And we went 11 of those days without showers. And just the reality of living in a stinky school bus, doing it all over again, buying thrift store clothes, throwing them out after a gig because they stunk like smoke and everything else, um, but just dedicating your life to the love of the game. I mean, it was it was crazy making. I mean, it did a lot for my sense of humor. It developed my, it brought me out of my shell, you know, but also it was, um, you know, all the things, disgusting, sad, depressing, a lot of waiting around to play. That hour on stage was euphoric, and the other 23 hours were frustrating, uh, mildly frustrating. And I, and I try to pass all of this information along to my daughter. Just I'm like, just so you're aware. And there's this great movie that Dave Grohl just put out called What Drives Us. I'd highly recommend it. It's so great. But we made all the kids and their families sit down and watch this together to really see if they want to do this thing, because it's what it takes. And they're all super gung-ho, but it is a young person's game, you know? Yeah. What eventually takes you... What happens to make you say, okay, so this was my dream band. I'm touring with them. I'm on stage with these iconic bands from that particular time. Yeah. And what happens to make you say, okay, it's time to tap out? You know, well, I was I was always really into true songwriters. I loved the Indigo Girls. I loved Paul Simon, uh, Elvis Costello, Ani DeFranco, who I mentioned, just, just obsessed with songcraft. And... Uh, this band, once I got into it, then they were great writers and they had great stuff, but they, we signed a record deal and they wanted to go back and re-record like a retrospective of the best stuff from their career prior to me joining. So it just felt like I was playing in a tribute band. And I, I, I remember feeling that way at 20 years old. I didn't want to feel that way. I wanted to make it work, but, um, it didn't work for me creatively. So I decided to form my own band and take us out to Los Angeles. So you tap out of that particular band, but not out of the, the industry. At that point, you're still like, okay, so this, the way that I'm showing up, the people I'm showing up with, it's, it's not right for me, but I'm still all in on the industry. So let me go out to LA and do my own thing. What happens there? Yeah. Well, I, I got married, uh, young and, uh, around the age of ju just turned 24, married my wife, Gail, and, um, uh, we moved out to Los Angeles together and she always knew that that was who I was, that she married a musician and that that was my natural path. 
but when I got out there that that time, I really realized the daunting task of what it would take to learn how to write songs. I mean, really write songs. It, I, I was involved on that level before in bands, but not at the level of craft that I would was dreaming of. So I started hooking up with other writers and it was a lot of hours sleeping on studio floors and just trying ideas and laying around like zombies, trying to come up with a word that rhymes with this thing or, you know, a not a corny metaphor. Um, doing that long, lonely work of songwriting that Tom Petty talks about so brilliantly in his book. And um, yeah, so I was in the industry and during the day, because I had a young wife, I was working in PR and eventually home entertainment, just trying to, you know, get by, pay the bills. And so I was getting, on one level, my life started, my career started, but then creatively, progressively more and more frustrated. I was spending more time stuck in traffic, less time on my instrument, more time paying bills, and just starting to get a lot of that early life angst, you know, trying to figure out a way to do the creative thing. You know, like LA seemed like the destination to do it in, but there was so much work involved just to get to back to practicing or playing. Yeah. And also, I mean, for you, if like you shared, your fundamental impulse is around performing. It's, you know, like it is taking a moment and interacting and experience and energizing, animating, enlivening it. Yeah. And it sounds like the part of it that you love most turns out like it starts to become the part of it that you're most disconnected from when you're out there. Yeah. When I look back on my LA experience, I realized that there was about a million things in between me and just having any opportunity to perform. Like even promoters who make money on you playing shows didn't want you to perform too often in the market because it's so saturated. And I started realizing over time that the thing that I always felt like I was here to do, be a performer, it was either the thing I was resisting the most and or the thing I was just trying to pack a million other things in front of in my life. So yeah, at that point, I just remember being very disconnected and frustrated and searching. So, so what, because you go from there, you're working in sort of like different jobs to, to take care of everything. And then you're on the road and you're doing this thing and, and all of these realizations are happening and you make this interesting move. You go from there and you, you basically say, okay, I'm, I'm going to put this aside for now, at least as my central devotion and just go all in, in the world of, uh, was there a step between that and basically d diving headlong into the world of startup tech firms. <laughs> yeah, so I was I was literally forest gumping it at this point in my career. There was not a lot of intentionality. It was all happening a little bit on autopilot and by accident. And I think what I was throwing myself headlong into was just trying to be a more dependable partner and spouse, you know, to honor my earlier commitment. Uh, we got married pretty young and I just wanted to give my wife really a, a sense of stability. And uh, so I started out in home entertainment, as I mentioned, at MGM. And I was really lucky to work for some real conscious leaders there, like high EQ, culture first, people first, that really had a big influence on me. And then we decided to move a little bit closer to family. We moved back to Chicago. And Chicago, um, that experience was getting into advertising. And I, gosh, I hated advertising so much. It just felt like such noise and distraction and such a pressure cooker of, you know, deadlines that that's when I made the jump into advertising technology. And I, I kind of found my family for the next nine years of my career, which was Centro, this uh, digital media startup led by Sean Riegsecker. And that was just an incredible experience to start trying to figure out this intersection between business and consciousness on some level. Like there was, there was, it was so fast moving and so relentless. And I just got really caught up in, uh, 
in, in the velocity of that. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, especially business and consciousness in the context of a really fast growing tech-based startup, you know, yeah. in the ad world, which is generally sort of like it, it spins at a million miles an hour anyway, it doesn't seem like those words go together, you know, right. sort of like conscious, like really a focus on the human being within this bigger thing, because it's moving at incredible pace. Yet you, you somehow were able to zoom in on the experience of the human being within that context. Yeah. I think what I did, and, and I do credit the founder, Sean, for giving me the space to do this. Sean Reeksecker, he's truly a special. He was raised Mennonite, which is people that can use technology, but also very high integrity, very spiritually connected people. And uh, he gave me the space to really focus on the culture and to fly a flag for that thing. Um, I was also still kind of not so much into the advertising. We were in digital advertising, but it was advertising nonetheless. I was less concerned about the the business offering and, and more concerned about the people that powered it. And he gave me a lot of opportunities to speak to the new higher classes. I was, I was one of 44 people when I started in 2008. And by the time I left in end of 2015, we had well over 900. And the, the groups of new hires every single month were larger than the, than the company that I started with. We'd have 45 to 50 people a month starting. Yeah. I mean, meanwhile, so you're in this company, you're literally like going back and forth. You're in Ohio. Um, the company's in Chicago. You're sort of like bouncing between these two things. And a big part of what you're doing is you're in the world in part, um, like in the early days, especially, I know there's like a big sales, a big biz dev side to what you're doing, which generally means going out and drinking and partying and oh, yeah. being hyper social. But it all, it, it all comes to a head for you. You know, you're doing really well in the organization and you're doing all these different things, but you hit a point where you're like, okay, so there's got to be something more. And it sounds like a huge part of the tipping point for you was literally stumbling over a book. It's true. And um, yeah, it's it's the book that everybody told me I should read for about eight years, you know, it just kind of starts smacking you on the head like, this is your book, you should really read it. You know, yeah, 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 I'll get to it. You know, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And when I finally sat down to re read it, it was towards the end of 2011, while my wife was in childbirth with our third child at this point, Leon. Um, this was, we were back in Akron, Ohio at this point. I was traveling all the time. Yeah, like kind of frustrated salesperson, probably drinking too much. There's a million excuses to drink when you're a dad and a um, salesperson and a musician, you know? <laughs> and um, I read, I finished that book while she was giving birth and it just really gobsmacked me. Um, I just really felt a deep resonance with me and it, it made me question kind of everything, question my path and start to get more serious and clear about what it is I wanted to get out of, out of work and, and how I impact the world. So I'm curious. I want to, I actually want to dive into this a little bit because, so that book, Autobiography of a Yogi is a book that has been around for a really long time yeah. and that so many people who I know and who I've known over a period of decades now point to that book as this profound, almost like rupture slash launching point of something new inside of them. I'm curious when you read that at that moment in your life, do you have a sense for what it was about it that was able to just sort of like give you this entire new frame on how you want it to be in the world. Yeah, it is so deep. I mean, 
for, and just for a little context, I mean, it definitely had that effect on Steve Jobs. You read it every year from the time he was 17 to when he passed away, he gave it to everybody at his funeral. And what's funny is your book, Uncertainty, was the, the next book I read after finishing Autobiography. And, and it was literally like you had dropped into my life just after that. And when I look back at all of my teachers and coaches and mentors and the people that inspire me, they all started arriving in pretty sequential order from the time I finished that book the first time. And I think it what it was, and, and let's let's be honest, for as many people that resonate with the book, there's a whole other army of people that just, just don't get it on the first or the fifth try, that it's it's too dense. It's there's too many miracles, there's too much wild levels of spirituality, and it's it's dripping with divine ardor, like the love of God is dripping out of it. So I was not particularly qualified to pick that book up when I did. But what I started realizing was that when I when I go back in my my entire life to you know being you know 3 or 4 years old looking at the cover of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band I mean what kid doesn't look at that vinyl cover of all those faces and four of this lineage of gurus is in the cover of that album mostly due to George Harrison and I started realizing that the guru and the teachings and when Yogananda left his body in 1952 which was about 6 years after finishing his autobiography that book just celebrated its 75th anniversary he said the teachings will be the guru. And I think what I resonated with on that first, it was undeniable on that first reading was that I felt like I was coming home to something. I didn't know what it looked like yet, but it felt like it had always been part of me. And I started piecing back together my LA experience. Like, this is what's crazy, Jonathan. Like, I've been back to LA for work now, you know, speaking or teaching or doing my own, my work now. And Literally, I'll be looking at an intersection in downtown Los Angeles, and I thought, well, wow, that's where my band practiced, and I was usually high and very unhappy. And on that next corner is where Yogananda left his body in 1952 at the Biltmore Hotel. So these things were always right in my face, even when I was at my most disconnected, and I needed the book to start threading all of this back together for me. So yeah, it did feel like a, a reminder of... This has been my teacher, perhaps from other lifetimes, some some level of resonance. And it's something, it's a book I literally can't stop reading. Chances are it's usually the only book I'm reading. And I'm probably on my 12th or 13th read through of it. Yeah. I mean, this becomes so powerful for you that you decide that you actually want to devote a chunk of your life to the path laid out yeah. into the, you know, tradition um, and become, what's the word for self-realization fellowship? <laughs> yeah. So in, in self-realization fellowships, the organization that Yogananda founded to spread the teachings. And 2011, I finished the book. I read Uncertainty by Jonathan Fields. You launch the Good Life Project Immersion. And, and so I spent 2012 in this ridiculous, ruthless self-knowledge uh, kind of search. You know, there was like all the levels we were opening up in the Good Life Project immersion. And then there was like the Kriya Yoga lessons, the at-home lessons of Yogananda, which made me question everything from, you know, what I'm putting into my body, how I party, how I don't, you know, it was questioning everything. So it was a very hard, you might remember, I was a little bit of a disaster that whole year, just searching wildly for what I'm feeling so untethered. And things started coming into focus towards the end of that year. I reinvented my career, moved from sales into training and development with a lot of the people's help in the immersion, you know, just people saying, you know, don't blow up your career. You have a family of five at this point, like chill, man, <laughs> you know, just go slow. But by that point I was meditating about an hour each morning and just starting to surrender more into um, the path of becoming what they call a Kriyaban. And a Kriyaban is somebody who takes uh, the vow to practice 
uh, for the duration of their lives. And um, that, that taking those vows didn't come until the fall of 2013. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping as a special offer for our listeners new customers get five dollars off a lumi starter pack with the code goodlife at lumideodorant.com don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness that equates to over 40 percent off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code goodlife Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. So as you're deepening into the side of yourself and you're reorienting you're still in the same company, still in the same culture, but you've changed the way that you're actually stepping into it and also what you're doing so that yeah. there's you, you're stepping into it from a place of more 
let me educate and uplift and actually build more consciousness within the organization. You created this shift. You're also in the world differently. Like you say, uh, you know, meditating an hour a day, you're going on retreats. You start wearing the traditional prayer beads also. I'm yeah. curious what happened. What, what's the feeling in your family? As you're going through this, you're, you're married and you've got <laughs> yeah. like at that point, three little kids, like you've been this person that they know in a particular way up until that moment in time. And all of a sudden there's this profound internal change in you that starts showing up in an external observable way on a daily basis, not just through the practices, but the way that you're carrying yourself. But also it's not the typical way yeah. that sort of like you, people around you, people in your community show up in the world or in your family. So I'm curious what, I'm always curious when somebody goes through sort of like some sort of profound awakening, be it spiritual, whatever it may be, how that ends up being experienced by the people closest to you and how that impacts your relationship in the early days? Well, I think it's a real spectrum of responses you get from the people around you. I mean, my, my wife has been incredibly supportive of everything I've ever done. And, and she would she was very happy when I chose to be sober uh, in about May of 2012. And I'm coming up on 10 years next next May. And she knew that I wasn't happy and didn't need to be a drinker. Like I, I know full well how to party with or without <laughs> any type of chemicals. So um, she was supportive. And, and she, I think she would say honestly that I was starting to become a more present dad and, and less, less frustrated. I mean, the frustration still happens to this day. I mean, that's, that's life, you know. But, um, you know, I have other family members that, you know, assume that because I make different choices to be either more spiritual or less drunk or more sober, that I'm judgmental of them in some way, or that my choices somehow indicate, you know, judgment of theirs. And uh, so it was, tar it was hard, you know, I mean, it, it definitely changed a lot of my relationships. Certain friend groups definitely fell away, made room for new friend groups that were more in line with my new values. Um, but all in all, I'd say at the heart of it was that I was just trying to find any way to, to really be myself and be happy. And the more I got into meditation, the less I got into drinking or running away from home to travel, the more I started to feel like me and started feeling like I was here doing what I was supposed to do. And, you know, you were such a, a massive part of that journey as you are for so many of your listeners. I mean, just to have a fellow dad, you know, that, that says that it's all right and it's all right for it to be hard. And it's all right to do your best to love everyone at all times, even when they're, you know, being difficult. I mean, just um, I, I really feel like autobiography and my practice uh, helped open the door for friends like you to support me doing that evolution. I appreciate that. The um, you know, it it is really interesting. There's um, there's this popular sort of psychology that says, you know, um, if it's hard, it ain't right. And I'm just like, no, man. There are a lot of things. Yeah. that are really, really hard in life where you're going to stumble and get knocked down and have to get up and work relentlessly to bring it to realization. And it's right. There's this really interesting mythology around people saying, yeah, when it's right, basically the universe rises up to support you. All of the obstacles become magically cleared and everything just like opens up to embrace you and step forward and step forward and step forward. And I'm like, I have heard those mythological stories and I've known people that have had one or two steps go that way. But then the third or the fourth ends up like falling off the trail yeah. and not because it, they're not headed in the right direction, just because things can get hard. You know, it is the fundamental nature of the way we are. I think that's a, a in no small part, you know, the way reason I meditate is just to be able to see more clearly and to respond to those moments 
with more intentionality rather than reactivity. And, mm. you know, but, but so it's interesting to hear your reflection on that. Um, when you start to do this, it also starts to really rewire you from the inside out and over a period of years. And I'm, I've witnessed it because you know, like we've <laughs> known each other for yeah. a long time now. Um, and from the first time that I met you to literally probably like five years after that, you were showing up as a different person. And it was interesting. It was like you said, um, you know how to party. <laughs> you don't need substances. You know how to have fun and be joyful and be present. But there was a groundedness. There was a certain um, spaciousness around you, even when I saw you struggle, um, mm. which, which you have and you will again. Yeah. But you hit a point where you're going through this personal evolution. You know, there's almost a liberatory process happening inside of you. You're seeing yourself in the world differently, but the world around you, especially in the context of work, is not changing. Right. What's that like? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot to balance in Western culture when you're a dad and you're a provider and you are trying to figure out, you know, what it is you're here to do. I mean, there's bills to pay and a lot of reality. I love what you said about the struggle too, is that I think it is supposed to be hard. I think that, you know, the world needs to know how bad we really want it, you know? And and I think that all of this to me comes back to the spiritual path because the these monks that I counsel with throughout these different touch points that, you know, it gets hard. I mean, it gets hard so much because it, you're creating heightened levels of awareness at all times, you know? So you're more aware of the struggle and you're more aware of how you're not showing up or you are showing up to it. And I think also part of that Good Life Project experience for me was surrounding myself with extraordinary coaches like Karen Wright, Cynthia Morris, these people whose job it is, now my job as a coach, create heightened levels of awareness. It's like the running theme and it's it's exhausting and hard and not many people want it, but that's where all the growth is. And um, yeah, I couldn't deny that I had outgrown my company. I had outgrown the business mission of the organization. I loved what we had built together. But my time was coming to an end and I didn't know exactly how it would, it all kind of came to a head. We did a, a New Year's Eve meditation when I was out in Encinitas from a sabbatical. This is like the end of 2015. I, we do a three hour meditation from about 10 PM until 1 AM, like over the new year. And I remember walking out towards the end of that meditation, kind of pleading with God and guru, just asking for reconciliation on my career. I was at a breaking point. I couldn't hold I couldn't hold it anymore uh, doing doing the old thing. And I got I got this kind of intuitive hit when I was leaving. And I, I don't, to this day, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but I just got this feeling that reconciliation is coming. You know, it almost sounded like a whisper in my ear, like brace yourself. And I was of course fearful and it did. I My job was eliminated while I was on that sabbatical. And I found out a week later that I had, you know, bought a dream house at the same time, had no career to support it. And now was my time. Now is my shot to, to build my own thing. So on the one hand, okay, so now's your time. Now's your shot. You've been doing all this practice. On the other hand, you come out of this profound experience and then you step back into your life realizing I've got a new home, a mortgage, uh -huh. <laughs> married with three kids yeah. and now no job. Right. Oh, you remember these calls? I called you quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> the uh, I remember because I'm just thinking, like a lot of people are, are experiencing their version of something similar now. Yeah, and it's a beautiful time to be in that game of transformation. I mean, it's just part of the reason I'm so excited for your book is that, is that everybody's looking for that vocation piece, and now we have a shot, and the and the job market is supporting that. But yeah, at the time, 
you know, beginning of 2016, I had all this stuff and no, no income to support it. And I remember we did a uh, kind of staff immersion uh, outside of New York City together. And I was a mess. I was really, I'd grown a beard. I was really freaked out to even get started. What if I mess up? I, could, I didn't have the language to describe what I was trying to market. I wasn't sleeping at all. It was just a whole lot of reality, you know, kind of crowding around me. And and truthfully, what worked for me was sticking with my meditation for sure. And then a lot of those foundational processes that we were recommending to people in the Good Life Project Immersion, you know, journaling, the perfect day exercise, the the three to five year painted picture, just really getting clear on what it was I was trying to create separate from the money I needed, separate from the, you know, the, the pressures, but what was I designing? And that started materializing within the next six months. You know, the clients started to flow, the, you know, the lifestyle that came with it started to emerge. And, you know, so I think it was a degree of like surrender and intentionality, but yeah, I didn't sleep very well for that entire year. And you kind of told me I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the the big, you know, so you essentially end up building a consulting practice and now it's just growing into a training company. And but yeah, I think one of the myths of entrepreneurship is like, you know, like the minute you start your own thing, it's elation and everybody now shows finally, up. Yeah. Everybody cares. <laughs> right. And it's like now now I'm in control. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like you're right. you are hundred percent not in control. You know, like the world is in control. The people who you like want to be your clients are in control. It's and it takes time and a lot of uh there's um in the world of tech startups, especially, there's like this term that came out of that world, the trough of sorrow. Oh, right. <laughs> and um, the, the, basically, nobody avoids that. Whether you're building a private practice, whether you're starting a company, whatever it may be, there will be a moment, very often early on, where like things are going good for heartbeat, and then you know, like you move into the trough of sorrow, where you start to doubt everything. That it was this the wrong call? What you know, what's going on? Should I go back? And when you have something like that. You know, I have to imagine that the years that you had already been developing a practice were so, so pivotal in your ability to not say, okay, I just need to run back to what I know. Gosh, I mean, there's there's a saying in yoga somewhere, there's water the roots. And I had been watering those roots for a lot of years at that point. And if I hadn't been, and I'm talking about like not only my work ethic, because I was working with you. I was working with Centro. I was working on This Epic Life, which became my company. Like three jobs and dad of three and all that entails. And then also working on just the, I think the meditation practice, it gives you self-compassion, thank God, right? Because you're constantly judging how terrible you're doing everything and why people aren't showing up or why your phone isn't ringing. I mean, it's, it's maddening. So I feel really grateful. If, if I'm grateful for anything about that brutal year of transformation, it's that I had gotten a jump on it through good role models and coaching and a, you know a guru to do the practice, to, to build that root system that, that would sustain me until things started to move and started to shift. Yeah. I remember you also um, coming to me and saying, you know, you start as you're starting to actually step into this new space and you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to define what I want this to look like moving forward over time and interacting with people. But there were two things that popped out in the early days. One was you getting really clear on what you called full life integration. Um, like no part of you gets left behind. And the other was this idea of being very precise about defining non-negotiables in life. Talk to me about each one of those two ideas. Yeah. So, um, 
one of the things that you coached me around, which was a huge pivotal thing for me, was launching my first manifesto, the Full Life Integration Manifesto. And that's what launched this epic life in 2012. And and it was all built around this theory and this experiment I had been running called Full Life Integration, which was to define your non-negotiables and mine are soul, vitality, family, art, and work. And then to do the work to integrate those things together as seamlessly as possible. So meaning... You know, if, if you're subdividing your day into when you get to work out or when you get to meditate and when you get to work, by that point, because I had been working from home and, and thank God people have the chance to figure this out now, like after this pandemic, we, we all get to either figure this out or suffer the consequences, is that you get to do all of these things within a given workday. So just because I'm working doesn't mean that I won't lift the barbells that are over there or sit down to meditate at my altar right here. It's all my work. You know, we are our work. And I think running those experiments prepared me to, you know, certainly to pull the crazy hours it takes to build a company. Um, but also the the self-compassion and the temperance you need, I think, as a parent to know that it's okay to shut down at five o'clock sometimes or at two o'clock to go pick up your kids. I mean, that is a very, very hard thing to navigate when you're, you know, responsible for for the for the revenue and but yeah, integration is is key, and it's 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 stuck around. I mean, it's it's the constant pursuit is integrating everything together. Yeah, and it's also in integration of what what's been fascinating to see is I feel like so many of us feel like we need if we want to be taken seriously, you know, seriously enough for somebody to to show up and say you have value, you can help me. There's something that, and and I'm going to compensate you for that insight. That very often there are parts of us that we need to hide from that person in order right. for them to, to take us seriously enough to actually allow us to sustain ourselves in the world. Um, there is a part of you which is goofy, playful, no. out of control, raging <laughs> of control? extrovert. Really? In front of right, my we're colleagues, about, really? <laughs> right, we're, we're talk, so, so, so for context, dear listeners, we ran, as many of you know, for five years, a, a, an adult summer camp called Camp GLP, where we would take over 160-acre sleepaway camp and 400-something adults would come from all over the world. And and Casey and and then another dear friend um, and member of our faculty, Amelia, would effectively be like the cruise directors, but also they would run the vibe for the entire thing. And it was not unusual for you to be seen running around in a bathing suit, you know, like sneakers and a massive inflated unicorn right. and a bullhorn. <laughs> right. Right. And that's a part of you. And you had so much fun doing it and people love seeing you doing it. And then like, I'm picturing you sitting down, like in a, like a business development meeting with a client and then saying, Christopher, um, I've seen some video of you online. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, it, and the, yeah, the evidence, the case files thick. Um, but what, what I realized at that camp good life project experience for five years was that you gave me this role, uh, and it was a lot of responsibility to help hold space for those people. Cause I would literally scare people into wanting to get back into their cars out in the parking lot, the introverted folks. But I also led the 6am meditation every morning, you know, and a few hundred people would show up to meditate together at six in the morning. And, and later in the day, like clockwork, somebody would always say around lunchtime, you know, like when I'm back in my unicorn regalia or whatever, they'd say, wow, man, your brother is so chill. And what what's wrong with you? You know, and they're talking about the guy that led meditation at six in the morning. I'm like, oh, that was actually me as well. But th what I started realizing was that the, 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 the crazy, the funny, the really playful side 
it, it's kind of the sugar to help the medicine go down. It, it's the the permission to what I call glow in the dark to to say, you know, it's okay to be your full self and to bring your full self. You 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 gave me that privilege of doing so. And as long as I was and and, and as long as it came from like a, a wholesome, loving place, I'm super proud of it. You know, like when my clients you know, most of my clients, they'll say, God, I wish I w- almost went the last year and I'm ki- kicking myself for not going. They, they feel like they missed out on something extraordinary, which they did. And it, it's something I try to bring to all of my executive retreats now. So like some of my clients will know me in this very, you know, tactical, you know, serious relationship of coaching. And then when they see me on relation uh, on, on retreat, they're wondering while I'm sailing, wh- why I would be sailing over them in cannonball position, <laughs> like it fully clothed, creating a, a, a you know, a splash and getting everybody soaked. It's because this is hard enough. It has to be fun, you know? Yeah. And, and within that also, you know, I think there's this really interesting line that you, you dance where that exact same thing can be perceived as being out of control. Um, but if you have done the work to create a shared understanding and a, a container of safety, that exact same thing is being perceived as permission to drop the shields and join in, which people want so much right now, which, which is, you know, I guess like one of the central messages really of your new book. And really it's, it feels like it's distilling everything you've learned over the last decade or so into your own ideology. And you come up with this model of the four permissions in this book. So first, how does this emerge into your mind? Well, you know, maybe about six years ago, I started saying, and it was, it was coming out of the camp experience saying, you know, I give myself and everyone around me permission to glow in the dark. And then I started realizing through meditation that it wasn't my job to give anybody permission. I could barely give myself that permission. So it's my job to try to dance with my own fear and being mortified because most of the time before I walk out on stage, not many people would know this, but before I walk out on stage, you know, in a you know unicorn unitard or whatever the ridiculous thing is, I am mortified. You know, I, I can't believe it that I, that I, that that's my job, you know, and how do I explain this to my kids when the pictures hit the internet, you know? And then when I, but, but when I dance with the fear and go do the thing anyway, all of the joy and the acknowledgement and the fun is on the other side of it, you know? So I started using permission to glow in the dark as language at the company I helped build uh, Centro. I launched the first meditation program, which was called the pause. And that became permission to chill. And then the, uh, the later two arrived through coaching lots of executives and, uh, but what I started realizing was that the, the four permissions framework is yoga at its root. It, it's something that's kind of taking over my entire life. Like if you would have told me four years ago, I'd be writing a book on four spiritual permissions and, you know, making it for a corporate audience. I think you are crazy. That is a asinine thing to attempt. But I realized that similar to Yogananda's teaching, it's always been a part of me and it was my job to articulate these permissions in this way. Yeah, I love that. It's almost like you're the whisperer of this thing. It's like, how do we serve it up in a way where people um, will interact with it? Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I want to walk through each one of these permissions just a little bit because I think it's it's interesting to touch into them. You you mentioned two of them, but let's start with permission to chill. Tell me what you actually mean by this. So permission to chill, I mean at the foundation I want to encourage everybody to create a meditation practice, but but when we're willing to pause we get to be with what is, whatever rises up in the moment to test us. And that could be the virtue of sobriety, if you think about it, just the willingness to be with whatever rises up. And we can't do that unless we're willing to slow the hell down and stop being speedy rabbit and to just notice and breathe. And the meditation practice supports giving yourself permission to chill. Yeah. One of the things that evolves out of this, and I know you write about, and I've experienced personally having a long-term practice is this experience of discernment. Huge. And I think right now that is so, so important. Talk to me a bit bit about this. I'm curious how how that has shown up in your life too. Gosh, I I don't know if I would have survived the last six years truly if I hadn't built my discernment muscle. So your discernment muscle is the muscle you build of your meta attention. So when you bring your attention back is a thousand times if necessary in meditation, it's not the absence of thought, it's your willingness to sit and to bring your attention back to your breath, back to the mantra, whatever it is. So in strengthening that meta attention, you strengthen your discernment and the discernment helps you navigate these topsy-turvy, crazy, volatile, uncertain, complex you know, times that we're in. And um, you know, the last five years in the United States felt like back to the future too when Biff is the mayor. I mean, it felt really dark and weird, right? So, so just to have you know, a, a way to touch stone and to navigate back, that's, that's what discernment gives us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really powerful experience for, for my experience of it is that the practice allows me to see more clearly, more quickly. So I can try and get closer to, to, um, an understanding of, I'm always trying to get sort of like one step closer to the capital T truth. Yeah. (laughs) You know, rather than the truthiness that floats around the world these days, like what is the actual fact? Like, what is the actual fact? And what is the fact now? Was it, what was the fact generations ago? And how can I see past my overlay and the overlay of all the people around me to get as close to the fact as only possible? 
knowing that I'm probably as delusional as anyone else, like, but how can I get through that? And for me, the practice, one of the things is the ability to, I feel like it lowers some of the veils. It yes. clears away some of the fuzz, you know, like it's like the fog on, on the window. And then that being able to see more clearly is the thing that leads to discernment because you can make decisions based on better information. Has that been your experience also? Oh gosh. Well, one of the things I write about is that in coaching, what we realize, what makes us suffer or what keeps us from, you know, achieving our goals or dreams are all these interpretations, what so-and-so thinks, what the media thinks, what the weather says, what we, how we feel about it. And I, I love what you, the pursuit of truth, I think is free from interpretation or at least noticing your own interpretations and owning it versus operating as if that's omnipresent reality, you know, and that, that closer to reality, it's something that Yogananda has taught. It's based on, you know, the ancient Rishi's teachings for thousands of years, like true objective reality is joy. It's free from that interpretation and that it takes conscious work to sit down and try to find that because we're, we are constantly being buried in new interpretations. Mm, yeah, that resonates. Um, Permission to feel all the feels. Represented by the unicorn. The permission to feel all the feels is where all of my breakthroughs continue to happen because I wanted to be a superhero and performer. And, um, you know, I, I, I interpret this as the permission to be at peace with what wells up in your heart to guide you. To, when we do the earlier work of giving ourselves permission to chill, we could then hear some of the wisdom our body is speaking to us through our emotions, through our feelings, versus just suppress them or drown them in more scrolling, more booze. We can use those as data to guide us. And um, I, I think that that's part of deepening our, or raising our emotional intelligence, certainly, uh, but also uh, tapping into our deeper intuition and being guided from within. So, I mean, when you say it, it's like, yes, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And yet so few people live from that place. What is your sense of what stops people? I think it's um, the constant second guessing we grow up being trained to do. We, we all have that little voice inside us and we think it's crazy or we think it's imagination or, or whatever. Or we think we're being, you know, we use terms in our culture like ugly crying. You know, why the hell should crying be ugly? I don't know. I guess, I guess it's a joke. It's like mommy's drinking wine all day in yoga pants. Like it's, to me, it's just not funny after a certain point. Um, I get the haha aspect of it, but like when my clients say, oh I'm, oh, I'm ugly crying, it's, it's such a cop out. It's basically diminishing your beautiful humanity and your, you know, that release has something to express and it has something to inform. And I think if we write it off as some joke or something ugly that we're missing a big opportunity. So, I mean, how do you convince people of this? Because so yeah. if, if in fact, the thing that stops us from going there and then leads us to give the sort of these, you know, humorous or socially acceptable overlays or, or, you know, like angles to those rare right. moments when we actually let it out, like how it is so deeply ingrained for us to not quote, feel all the feels yeah. you know, or when we do to, to basically stifle it down the second that we feel it and not let anybody around us be a part of that or know that this is what's going on. Like, how do you even begin the process yes. of getting okay, letting it out? Well, I, I definitely uh, name check our, our friend Amelia Zivitovskaya because her last name is so fun to say. But <laughs> she she has this thing. Uh, she teaches positive psychology, and the, she has the Flourishing Center in New York City. And the, I, I love her framework: notice, name, and navigate. It's very simple, and uh, it's as simple and as complex as that. So if you are meditated, uh, which helps, 
you can notice what that thing is. Oh, I am clearly upset right now. I am angry. You know, I am not happy, right? Noticing is the first step, uh, naming what it is, and then navigating accordingly, you know, and, and you can't just like slap a happy face on it and say, oh, I'm happy now. That's not feeling all the feels. That's, that's what I call game face, you know? But if you, if you're willing to navigate back up that emotional scale from where you are, maybe into mild frustration or back to center, wherever that looks like for you, I think that's, uh, you know, just even having that practice, I notice this, I, I practice this literally every night uh, at the sink when I'm doing the dishes before dinner, when the dog wants fed, the kids want fed, everybody's anxious and annoying and annoyed. And I just want to blow my stack like Yosemite Sam, <laughs> but I'll just notice the water on my hands, notice the anger and and work with it. And it just becomes, you know, access back into being with what is, you know? Yeah, no, I love that. And, and it's not even, it's not even like that you're saying, okay, share all the feels. Maybe, sometimes maybe if it's appropriate. Yeah, it's not always appropriate, right. But some, but I think the right the bigger hurdle is just allowing us to feel it and often not feel a sense of shame that we're even feeling it, you know, and just say like, no, like this is legitimate. It's going on inside of me. Just be with it and yeah. see see what comes up. You know, we're we push stuff down and away so often because we're told we're not supposed to have that feeling. But just allowing it to be inside of you is a huge first step. I feel Gosh, like, and I think we're so drawn to people who give us permission to be human, you know, and we earn that privilege when we give it to others, like meaning that if we demonstrate that or that, that at least we're willing to try or be perfectly imperfect or, or accept when we're messy or whatever, I, I think, you know, people like Brene Brown come to mind just giving us what, like what a gift that is, you know, to let down the facade. Yeah, for sure. Glow in the dark, third permission. Glow in the dark. Ah, oh, I love permission three. Permission to glow in the dark. It's like full expression with witnesses, despite the ever present fear learning to dance with the darkness. You know, I think of Olympic ski jumpers uh, in the Winter Olympics that just sail off the end of the ramp towards glory, leaning off the skis into the wind. Like, how do you figure that out, right? And uh, that's same, you know, my same experience with entrepreneurs are, are very similar wired, but, but it's the practice of building courage through dancing with the fear and, and doing the thing anyway. You know, cultivating your audacity muscles, you know, it's hard. You know, it's interesting. Um, I probably never told you this, but there were moments where, you know, we're at camp GLP surrounded by 450 people. You're uh -oh. running around <laughs> with, comes. you know, like the, the unicorn outfit or, you know, like literally like 12 layers of clothes, multicolor and screaming on the top of your lungs with a bullhorn and leading you know, spontaneous dance parties. And, and I would look at you and I'm like, I'm a quiet person. I'm an introvert. Um, and I would look at you and I'm like, why can't I be like that? <laughs> mm. Gosh, well, well, um, let me. And it's not that I want to be you. It's that yeah. you, there's a level of comfort that you've cultivated at this point in your life, simply stepping out and being you, whatever that may look like. It could be a quiet person. It could be a loud person. It could be funny, right? As dorky, whatever that may be that you've cultivated that I'll sometimes catch myself looking at you and saying, I'm not there yet. And then I look at you and I'm like, wow, this is, there's something in you that has found a way to be utterly okay in that space. That is just beautiful. It's like grace. Hmm. Well, like I said, I was surrounded by really good mentors that were like fanning the flames. So like, I think we're, I think we're snake charm or, you know, the, like I, I picture the dude playing the flute and the snake is kind of like doing the dance and 
I get to do that with 400 people or whatever at camp, you know, just come out to play. It's great out here, you know, and some people are totally mortified. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm totally fine back here. And part of me is that in that spot too, right? But with you, one of my favorite moments at camp was the very end where, you know, you, I tuned up your guitar that you built by hand backstage and I came out with the unicorn head on and I handed you a guitar and we played played and sang Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And it was just so preposterous. And there's a picture of you singing it full voice and throw it right next to me. And I'm like, see, this is where we both get to like mesh and learn. Because I learned so much from you just in the being piece, the the being calm in all these tumultuous times, like the being a dad when when it's the last thing that it feels like there's time for us sometimes. Like I, like you gave me that permission in so many powerful, profound ways. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a joy to hear you say that it's, you know, I think you are there. I think you put yourself out there and glow in the dark and, you know, ask anybody on the street of Jonathan field fields clothes, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) In a different way, maybe. Uh, Um, let's wrap to the fourth permission glowing in the light. How's this different? Yeah. So, um, one of my sheroes, Ani DeFranco, uh, she became a friend when she was on my podcast years ago. And it's preposterous to think that we have, um, you know, a friendship. And she said during one of our conversations, she said, you know, what if we just transcend the fear and there's no more darkness? What is, what is glowing in the light? Like, I want that, you know, like beacon level. And, and it just planted the seed and, uh, another friend, Lauren Neff, said the exact same thing. You know, what if we move past this? What does that look like? And it was the hardest part of the book to write in that I had to kind of look beyond all the darkness that's all around us so heavy in this moment in time. And what I think it is, is what would our creator want for us? It would be to transcend competition for collaboration. It would be the leaders who have done the earlier work of the first three permissions of chilling, feeling, and glowing in their own darkness they wouldn't be confronted by competition or scarcity anymore. They would be more concerned with uplifting everyone around them and inspiring everyone around them. And I know that can sound Shangri-La or utopian. However, what other choice do we have when things are this heavy is to integrate as one much larger system to support one another and and create some light around here? Mm. Yeah, it's almost like at what point do you hit a tipping point where enough people are participating in a process of change that the the fiber of the fabric that we've woven that we're trying to change you know like slowly goes from dark to light yeah it's 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 an interesting question so so the, these four things they take work they make a big difference um not just in our work life and how we show up but in our personal lives and our relationships and our relationship to ourselves effectively what you've done is written your own spiritual manual in the guise of digestibility, fun, and also to a certain extent business. But still, everything that you're talking about is hard work. Yeah. And we're going to stumble a lot along the way. One of the things that you wrap with is this notion of compassionate change. Yeah. Well, our, our mutual friend, Susan Piver, one of her many brilliant quotes about meditation is if meditation was a pill, everybody would take it. It's like, 
Of course they would, because the benefits are just so undeniable, right? But it's not easy to show up every day when your head's a mess and you all you want is your coffee or whatever, your dog's barking in your ear. So I think that 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 is the invitation of the entire book. And it's yes, it's it's wrapped in a lot of 80s pop culture references and humor, ridiculousness to get that medicine down that like this does take a lot of showing up and a lot of work and a lot of practice. And it ends with the mechanics of compassionate change because the only thing I've noticed in coaching a lot of leaders, a lot of powerful creators that have no problem getting anything done, but stop shy of changing themselves, which is why they hire a coach sometimes, compassion is the grease and the gears, man. It's like the thing that allows us to be gentle with ourselves enough to give our dreams a fighting chance, you know? So I'm I'm trying to just give people that permission that my, I think my coaches and my wife and my mentors gave me, which was to be patient with me. You know, we're not, we tend to ride ourselves like a crappy little horse jockey. And I felt like that came out of like 1980s personal development, the whole, like, I got this mov- movement, you know, like that really like rah, rah achiever. I got this, I got this rah, rah. And I loved all, like, trust me, I grew up on all that stuff. If you can't tell, but the, the, we got this, the, the surrender into maybe I don't got this and I'm a disaster most days, you know, that gives us a foothold into what I call crossing the desert, uh, the, the conscious incompetence it takes to create lasting change. It's, yeah, it's all about compassion. Mm, conscious incompetence. Um, <laughs> it's fun. Right? Super fun. <laughs> yeah. Beginner's mind always every day, but it's not easy to step there, especially when you Especially, I think if you if you perceive yourself as being someone who has accomplished a certain amount in life, or somebody who has reached a certain status, or to sort of like say, no, actually, there's a whole lot of me, which is more or less um, a perpetually evolving uh, soup of disaster. <laughs> that is not necessarily the easiest thing. And then to actively step into that space and say, let me be with this and see what emerges out of it, because I'm just going to have faith that something worth. The, the effort will, um, it's, it's, it is not an easy yes, but what's the alternative? Well, like two quick things come to mind. One is there's this excellent movie by Jerry Seinfeld from many years ago called comedian documentary about him creating, this is after he sold the show into a, like a billion dollar syndication deal. He goes and starts bombing at every single club just to create a new hour of comedy, the most humbling thing. And, and something I say in the book that, that made me laugh on the final read through is that, uh, crossing the desert of conscious incompetence is like a nude wind sprint through the cold cafeteria of personal growth (laughs) because most of us are not willing to suck at anything. Like, let's be honest, you know, our cultures like beat that out of us. Like, we'll just stay safe over here and do the thing I'm great at, you know? But um, the willingness to do it, the willingness to try, it does create beauty. It creates new art. It creates new permission for people around us. It certainly creates high EQ leadership, you know, one of these conscious leaders I've worked with for many years, he said the seven most powerful words in business. So when he says that, he's like, I I listen, you know, I'm about to chisel them in granite. He's like, I don't know. What do you think? Those are the most powerful words in business from a guy that's built a massive company. I'm like, yeah, right. I don't, the willingness to say, we don't know, you know? Yeah. And I mean, what's the, the alternative is, is stasis and eventually regression, you know? Yeah. Nobody wants that. <laughs> like if we, if we rock that I got this attitude too much, it just perpetuates more of the same. And, and over time, it, it kind of looks to me like mediocrity. But if you leave yourself open for something more or just surrender, 
there is a divine response that comes. And if it doesn't come directly from some sort of source, it will come from your friend saying, you know, have you thought about, you know, yeah. just admitting we don't know. So I want to start to come full circle with you. You started introducing the word divine earlier in our conversation around Yogananda and, and you keep looping it in and referencing back to it. Before this, what I'm going to call an awakening, I don't, you may not call it that, but, but from the outside in, this is what, what I've seen with you over the last decade. Before that, did you consider yourself in any meaningful way a, a faith-oriented, religious, or spiritual person? And when you use that word divine now, what do you actually mean? Yeah. Well, to answer the first question, I, I always considered myself a deeply spiritually curious person decidedly turned off by organized religion as a child, scared, witless, and shamed into finding better teachers, you know, which made me spiritually curious. And I think that that whole lifetime of searching when I found Yogananda's work and it, it just, all this stuff started quickening and compounding into whatever this is today. And if you would have asked me if I thought I'd be a spiritual teacher at the intersection of consciousness and business, I'm like, no way, not me. But then the more I learn about it, I'm like, no, it's kind of an awesome job. You know, it's super fun. It's inspiring. I get paid to have inspiring conversations all day long. And when I think of the word divine, I think of just any level of surrender to something bigger than us, you know? And because I am a, a person of faith now these days, I but I've earned that faith through a lot of direct practice. And Yogananda said, when you're willing to practice yoga at this level and Kriya Yoga in particular, it has scientific returns, meaning that the level of effort you put in, you get predictable benchmark results from it. And I think that's what's increased my faith uh, substantially over the last few years. So um, I say early in the book that it doesn't call whatever that thing is, God, goddess, you're you know the greatest of all time, whatever you want to call that thing, it doesn't care what we call it. Um, however, that when we acknowledge that something exists, something unifies us, we could do what Yogananda said, which was to dissolve this little singular wave on the ocean into this vast ocean of benevolence. And that to me feels like yoga. That to me feels like unity. Uh, it feels like something bigger. And I, and I think as a coach and as a dad, frankly, my job is to unlock the potential of others. And I, and I will do that by any and all means necessary. And I truly feel that at its heart, it is a divine, it, it is a spiritual conversation. Mm -hmm. feels like a good place for us to come full circle. So sitting here in this container of a good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? <sighs> Writing your own script, living your own script, um, not defaulting to the script that others hand you, and um, being in the joyous discovery of how messy and exhilarating that script can be. That's that's been uh, it's been the gift ever ever since I met you, Jonathan. You know, I've heard you ask that question to hundreds, if not thousands, of guests. You know, we ended up creating the freaking theme music for this on your guitar, and uh, I've always wondered what I would ever say when you asked me that question. <laughs> but that's what comes up for me. Mm. Thank you. Mm. It's been a pleasure, man. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation we had with Daniel Goleman about meditation. You'll find a link to that episode in the show notes. And even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download so it's ready to play when you're on the go. 
And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we're doing here at Good Life Project, then please go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about your favorite subject, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Till next time, I'm Jonathan Field, signing off for Good Life Project.